The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. Today's standard infantry rifle is as accurate and has as much range to it, really, as the sniper rifle of World War II. Hollywood cast Bradley Cooper, handsome Bradley Cooper, as Chris Kyle in the movie American Sniper. In real life, Kyle killed at least 160 people with his rifle, according to the Pentagon. This week on War College, we look at the history of snipers and the role they play in today's military. One of the things we learned is that in the past, this job was not exactly considered a badge of honor. You're listening to War College, a weekly discussion of a world in conflict focusing on the stories behind the front lines. Here's your host, Jason Fields. Hello and welcome to War College. I'm Reuters Opinion Editor Jason Fields. And I'm Matthew Galt, Contributing Editor at War is Boring. Today we're talking with Ian McCollum. He's the editor of ForgottenWeapons.com. The site is dedicated to researching and archiving information about historic and unusual firearms. It's an amazing collection of information. I totally recommend it. Ian previously walked us through the fascinating history of the machine gun, and today he's here to talk about snipers. Ian, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. I'm flattered. Let's start off with just sort of the basics. Um, Well, what exactly is a sniper? How do you define what a sniper is and does? Well, I would say traditionally and and still today, one would consider a sniper to be a person in military service whose focus is on hitting specific precise targets instead of just targets of opportunity. I think a lot of uh, what we see as the definition of a sniper, it it stands out a lot more in in historical warfare rather than today. Um, I think we'll, we'll talk about this a little bit in more detail a little bit later on, but I think we've kind of reached a point today where every soldier today is, in some ways, would be considered a sniper 200 years ago. All ranged weaponry starts with humankind as a way to hunt game. Uh, These are are tools that were developed to kill animals first, and then later turned on on fellow human beings. So in that context, the idea of one person managing to hit as precise a target as possible, as far away as possible, and with as few tries as possible, makes sense. That's the goal for everyone. You know, if, if you're out there stalking a deer, you, you want to kill it in your first shot and not miss and then have to chase it down or, or lose it and find another one. So in that way, I think the idea of precision weaponry literally dates back as far as the idea of ranged weaponry does. Well, I guess it makes sense. You have David and Goliath with uh, in the Bible with David using a sling, right? Sure. Yeah, there's a very early example. Are there any other early examples like... Uh, did ancient armies have troops that were specifically set aside to use precision weapons on high-value targets? Pre- I'm thinking pre-gunpowder. Not really that I have ever been able to see. Um, part of that comes from the fact that, in general, ancient battles were were uh, fought on wide-open fields. You needed room to maneuver, and there wasn't necessarily a whole lot of concealment. You couldn't have some dude hiding within, you know, arrow range of the enemy general. Um, now... That's not always the case. Uh, the first really, well, non-biblical, um, really perfect example of sniping I was able to find uh, is actually uh, King Richard the Lionheart, who was shot in the neck by a sniper in 1199. 
Um, he had he was besieging a, a castle in Normandy that was particularly poorly defended, and he was just kind of wandering around inspecting the siege fortifications uh, without his armor on, and there was some ostentatious guy up on the parapets with a crossbow shooting, and uh, apparently the, the guy actually took a pot shot at Richard and missed, and uh, Richard thought this was rather entertaining and, and congratulated him from afar, and then the guy took another shot and hit him in the neck. But it, it, this is a perfect example of this isn't a bunch of guys volley firing arrows into an army and happening to hit the king. This is one dude with one weapon specifically trying to shoot Richard and hits him. Um, in fact, what's kind of funny is uh, they, they end up ca capturing the castle very quickly. Uh, like I said, it was very poorly defended. Uh, and uh, Richard has the this guy summoned to him and and the guy basically says, hey, you know, I'm sorry, but you you killed the rest of my family, and I was kind of pissed. And uh, Richard actually uh, pardons him for it. Says basically, well, you know, that's kind of understandable. Uh, here, have a hundred shillings and and go on your merry way. Uh, then Richard dies, and then one of Richard's mercenary captains uh, grabs the guy anyway, flays his skin off, and hangs him. Ooh. Yeah, uh, ancient combat or or medieval combat was not a pleasant thing. That actually shows really dramatically how one arrow or one bullet can change things too because when you think about who succeeded Richard it ended up being King John who was supposed to be the worst king in all of English history and the Magna Carta one of the most world's most famous documents came out of that too it's like the the first sniper changed the world completely i don't want to call this guy the first sniper and by the way his name is probably uh Pierre Basila i'm probably butchering that pronunciation but the record gives him several other names as well, and nobody really knows for sure. Um, I, I have no doubt that he is not the first sniper. Uh, he just happens to be the first really well-recorded one because uh, he managed to actually hit a particularly high-value target. So moving on to the age of gunpowder, when did sniping really become a factor when people were fighting with gunpowder? Well, there are a couple things to, to consider. Um, First off, as far as far back as there have been firearms, there has been marksmanship competition. Although it was not necessarily widespread, um, but we know it was pretty well established in Holland and the German states by the 1500s. Um, the first known recorded uh, such competition was actually in the 1460s in Switzerland, uh, and it was both uh, musket and crossbow. So you had events for both weapons at the same time. Now, part of the problem with these early competitions is you were using smoothbore weapons. Uh, rifling hadn't been invented yet. And with a smoothbore firearm, your accuracy is mechanically pretty limited. So you're talking not more than 100 or maybe 200 yards, and on relatively large targets. No matter how good you are, having a smoothbore musket is going to limit your ability to make precision long-range shots at all. Uh, so in a military context, are you going to have a guy who's good enough and, and has the, the equipment, and is he actually going to be within 100 or 200 yards of a particular high-value target? Is there going to be a general that close that he can take a pot shot at? Uh, probably not all that often. Um, it's with the advent of rifling that all of a sudden firearms become much more precise weapons at longer ranges, and then you have the opportunity for people to take up sniping as an effective um, tool. When were rifles invented? Or the technique of rifling, I should say? Um, kind of varies, typically in the 1600s, although they didn't become all that popular and widespread until the 1700s. 
Uh, in general, people consider like the American Revolution to be one of the first large-scale uses, military uses of rifled uh, arms. That's that's not strictly true. They were used earlier, but you know, that kind of gives you a, a good uh, ballpark. Just for fun, would you mind just uh, explaining very briefly what rifling is and what it does? Sure. Um, the idea of rifling is you are actually, you have a spiral groove or series of grooves on the inside of the barrel, and you're firing a soft lead projectile. And that, that projectile is squeezed gas tight into the barrel, which means as it moves down the barrel upon firing, it's going to grab that, that groove, and that groove is going to force the bullet to spin. And what you get is an effect just like a thrown football. Um, the spin creates a stabilization effect, and it, it keeps the bullet going in a much more uh, predictable path and repeatable path. So a smoothbore gun, uh, a, you have a plain circular musket ball going down a, a smooth barrel, and it can bounce around, well, it won't bounce around inside the barrel, but its flight path is somewhat unpredictable and uh, very subject to getting blown around by wind, air currents, uh, different, different movement of the bullet as it flies. Uh, a spin-stabilized bullet is much more accurate. Now, there were some downsides to the rifling at the same time, which help explain why it may have been invented in the 1600s but didn't really become commonplace for some time. First off, it's ex much more expensive to make. Um, you need a, a better machinist, a better gunsmith to make a, a precision rifled barrel than a smooth barrel. Uh, it also has implications for reloading. Uh, at this point, all firearms are loaded from the muzzle. So you basically have a tube that's closed at one end and open at the other. And in order to load it, you're going to pour powder from the muzzle end of the barrel all the way down uh, to the breech. And then you're going to put a, a lead ball or bullet in the muzzle and then ram it down until it compacts the powder at the very bottom. Uh, that is a lot easier to do with a smoothbore. Uh, the problem with a rifle, a muzzle-loading rifle, is that you have to uh, engrave that rifling onto the bullet as you ram it down the barrel. So it takes more effort. It takes more time. It is, for example, much more difficult to do, say, lying down, uh, protecting yourself. You have to kind of stand up to get enough leverage on a ramrod to do that effectively. The alternative is you can actually use an undersized bullet, and that was sometimes done, which means there's less distortion of the bullet and it's easier. But that, of course, at the same time reduces your accuracy. So you'd mentioned that the the American Revolution was kind of what people historically think of as the first time snipers were rolled out. Why? What happened during that war? And how were they used? Well, at that point, what you had was a bunch of guys who were, they had their own personal weapons. Um, you know, this much of the, well, some of the American Revolution was done with militias and not standing armies. And so these guys were bringing their own personal rifles or uh, or muskets to the battle. And because they were subsistence hunters, uh, the, the reloading time for a rifle wasn't a big deal. And the accuracy was a big deal because if it meant that you only needed one shot to bag a piece of game and uh, feed the family for a little while longer, that was worth all the trade-offs. So a lot of these guys brought rifled uh, weapons to combat. When you have standing armies, typically the cost isn't worthwhile. Uh, military tactics of the day were to line everyone up in rows and, and fire in volleys. And for that, smoothbores work pretty well. Um, in fact, you can you can volley fire smoothbore arms faster because of this reloading speed difference. And so to a lot of military tacticians, rifles weren't, weren't a benefit to the army. So the Americans were using rifles 
The British, on the other hand, did they have riflemen as well? I mean, I know there was actually, during the Napoleonic Wars, a whole type of unit called riflemen. The British did have riflemen, uh, but not in not in large enough numbers to make a substantial impact on the battlefield. Um, the British actually used what is probably the first military-issued breech-loading uh, rifle as well during the American Revolution, um, the Ferguson rifle, but it was used in such small numbers that it didn't really have any meaningful impact on the fight. But this is one of those things where if you try and track down you know, what was the first time there was a military use of a rifle, you're going down a rabbit hole. There will always be one incident a little bit earlier where, you know, one or two guys showed up with one and, and you'll never, I don't think you'll ever really be able to find the absolute first incidents. What we can look for instead is the first time it was really used in substantial numbers and had a major impact. Let's switch tracks to a little bit narrower focus on the rifles themselves. As the rifles are coming into more common practice and they're being refined, what are some of the weirder weapons that were developed? <laughs> I knew you were going to get to this because I, I kind of have a reputation for dealing with weird weapons. Um, but there isn't really all that much weirdness involved with sniping rifles and precision rifles. Um, there are some things out there. Um, certainly some people would look to uh, the Whitworth rifle, which was an early British design that actually uses very pretty, pretty cool and interesting. Um, instead of a what we would think of today as a rifled barrel where it's round with some grooves cut in it, uh, the Whitworth actually was a hexagonal hole, and and that hexagon shape was twisted down the length of the barrel. So you had a number of advantages to it. You weren't actually imprinting rifling on a bullet. You were taking a hexagonal bullet into a spiraling hexagonal bore, uh, so it was faster to load. Uh, but you still got a gas seal, and you still got uh, the effectiveness of spin rifling on the bullet. Um, and those were... Those were used, and they actually have an excellent reputation for accuracy for the time. Did they jam more? Did that? Did they have problems loading? You said it was easier to load because you weren't imprinting the bullet. Uh, no major problems with them that I'm aware of. Although, again, you come to cost. Um, you also <laughs> you have to mold hexagonal bullets for them instead of being able to use round bullets. There, there are a number of often logistical issues like that. We'll take a gun where today we look at it and we go, you know, this is so odd, such so much obviously better, why didn't they use this? And often what we don't consider are some of the logistical and cost reasons. Uh, there, were, there were air rifles that were as powerful as some of our you know, medium-sized guns today that were used in the Napoleonic Wars. And again, someone's, you know, someone would wonder why these things were, they were quieter, they didn't make smoke, they were repeating, you, know, you could fire 20 shots in a row, almost as fast as a modern semi-automatic rifle. Why wouldn't they use these? And the answer comes down to a lot of logistics and training and durability in the field. So we see sniper movies. Uh, they're set World War II. Uh, also, uh, there's an episode of MASH that's stuck in my memory for about 35, 40 years uh, where they were pinned down by a sniper. Were snipers also used during World War One? Yes, absolutely. Um, in fact, I would say as a military tactic, sniping really came into its own during the First World War. Um, you do see it officially used in, in decent numbers during the U.S. Civil War. Uh, but really, World War I, everyone gets into the game. Uh, it takes some countries longer than others. Uh, the Germans were probably, at the outset, the best equipped. Um, I've, I've actually seen some suggestion that a lot of this actually goes back to geography. Uh, the Germans, German states had a lot of forests and a lot of mountains and a lot of areas 
where hunting was an acceptable and commonplace practice for young men. And that's not really the case in the United Kingdom. Uh, they didn't, you know, hunting in the UK was much more of a, an aristocrat's affair. And the result of this was uh, when the Germans are conscripting troops for World War I, they have the fairly large pool of people with active um, stalking and precision shooting backgrounds. They've been competition shooting, they've been hunting, they know how to handle guns, they know how to handle themselves in the field. And that's a resource that the British just didn't necessarily have. So the Germans started out the war, their sniper program actually used a lot of, and this is actually, this is the case um, across all, all the countries, really. They started out the war with commercial hunting rifles as their the basis for their sniper program. And then as they are able to build the manufacturing base, uh, they start using more military issue guns. Although the Germans in particular never really had a single uh, basic sniping rifle design. Uh, they had a couple different types of mounts, and they would use a wide variety of commercially available uh, telescopic sights on their rifles. Is this also when militaries begin specifically training people to snipe? Yes. I think you'll find some of that in the U.S. Civil War. But again, uh, World War I, it really comes into its own. Uh, it takes a little while to get going. Um, people have to kind of get over this initial idea that sniping is dishonorable and contrary to the generally recognized rules of war, uh, which is, there's a lot of holdovers from the Napoleonic era that show up in World War I. There was, the, there was a similar problem with the, the machine guns, right, when we were talking about those. They thought the they of them as ungentlemanly. Exactly, which they no doubt are, but that doesn't mean they aren't very effective and they, they don't get used a lot. And the same thing goes for snipers. So... Uh, once people kind of got over that objection and realized, you know, hey, this is effective and, oh, by the way, the enemy is, is bombing our civilian cities and we don't really care what happens to them anymore. So let's let's start using snipers and flamethrowers and poison gas and anything else we can come up with. Uh, then, yeah, all the major countries uh, institute training programs. Uh, they all start developing more or less standardized sniping arms. And, uh, yeah, you get a lot of doctrine. You get uh, doctrine regarding things like sniper hides and loops. You'll find early in the war, the Germans actually had little armored shields that they would use for snipers, something you could set up on the trench, and you'd have a little opening, a little sliding flap on it that you could put a rifle muzzle through and use that to protect yourself while you're shooting. Uh, that lasted for a little while uh, before they realized that this, this was bulletproof to an extent, but it was in no way hidden. And so actually, it's kind of funny, one of the early British responses to this, when they realized that this armor shield is, is proof against their 303 service ammunition, is they actually started uh, bringing up to the front big game rifles from, you know, English sporting big game rifles in 400 and 500 and 600 calibers. And, and they would use those things to blow holes through the German sniper armor because it was visible and obvious. You just had to have a big enough gun to, to break through it. So... After that, uh, things started turning more towards hiding rather than just trying to protect yourself. And in a lot of places in World War I, this got very elaborate. You would have multiple uh, overlapping and reinforcing sniper hides. They would position the, the hides in, in defilade or in enfilade so that you're not pointing straight at the enemy trench. You're pointing kind of perpendicular down along a trench, which makes it very difficult for someone to spot your hide. Um, and then you get, you know, you get weird stuff like the, the British would actually make fake, ho fake horse corpses 
that you could hide a guy in and it just looked like another piece of debris on the battlefield, except there's a sniper hiding in it. Um, the use of ghillie suits goes back to, I'm sure a lot of people have heard that term, that goes back to World War I. Uh, and that was actually a, a practice taken from Scottish game, uh, game wardens, more or less, uh, who would build these you know, rather fancy suits to camouflage themselves into the heather. And that practice gets adopted in various ways. Can you tell us a little bit about how modern sniper teams operate and how people are trained to do it and where you're likely to find them? So, yeah, to some extent I can. Um, through most of history, a sniper is kind of one element of a combined arms uh, unit. And the sniper is the guy who has a particularly precise rifle and is able to take shots that the rest of the guys with standard infantry arms can't take. However, the sniper typically isn't able to keep up a volume of fire equivalent to a standard infantryman. So you see this in a number of armies, uh, the Russians in particular, the, the sniper is in some ways treated like a mortar team or a machine gun team. Um, you'll put him in a specific place on the offense or on the defense where he can make the most of this more precise rifle and he can make hits out to several hundred yards on small targets. And, and like I said, historically, that's usually what a sniper is. Um, they're going to take shots of opportunity. They're, they're, they may be multiple snipers out there, but they usually operate individually. Um, and that's different than what we see today. Uh, normally today, when we think of a sniper, we're thinking of a special ops team, and it's usually two guys, a sniper and a spotter. And they're not so much part of a combined arms unit, generally speaking, as they are a, a reconnaissance arm. Um, there are a couple of guys who you can picture you know, sneaking into a specific location, overlooking maybe an enemy headquarters or a, a crossroads or something. And they're going to take a lot of notes and, and capture a lot of intelligence. And then at the, the appointed moment, they will fire one round and, and hit some specific high priority target and then sneak their way back, uh, back to the friendly lines. And I think that's much more of a modern uh, take on, on the, the sniper. Because generally, the infantrymen we have today, especially today, most of them have optical sights on their weapons. Today's standard infantry rifle is as accurate and has as much range to it, really, as the sniper rifle of World War II. So you've kind of taken that capability uh, from you know, a couple decades ago, and you've given it to everybody. And, and you've been able to give them that precision fire without losing the potential volume of fire, uh, because they all have self-loading, very reliable rifles. So instead, today, the sniper is much more of an intelligence arm than a combat arm in many ways. And you also, of course, have drones filling some of the role that a sniper used to play as well. Yeah. I think there are a lot of people who will argue that you need actual human eyes on the, uh, the location or the target rather than just drone footage. Um, and the sniper, having a sniper in position gives you uh, opportunities for uh, action and analysis that you may not be able to get just from a drone. Yeah, I think in, in some people's eyes, drones may, before too much longer, make snipers irrelevant. I don't believe that's the case, but I think it's an, an opinion you'll find out there. Last question, Ian. Why do you think that there is a romantic view of the sniper in American pop culture? You know, that's an interesting question because historically, the sniper is not someone that, that's viewed romantically. The sniper is usually the the criminal and the despised element of, of a horrible war that nobody wants to emulate. 
I think today uh, that view comes largely from uh, the American view of the the highly skilled individual self-sustaining um, operative. I think people like to um, compare themselves to someone who can do something like sneak out into enemy-held territory and and strike a critical blow and then and come back all without being spotted or without uh, consequence. They like that the the idea of individual power that that conveys, rather than the old view of someone who's just shooting unsuspecting people in the back. Those are two really, really divergent ways of looking at it. But on the other hand, uh, they both sound really fair. Kind of, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, sniping often historically has not been something that one is proud of and uh, announces to other people. And of course, you have the issue of whether you think it's good or bad, the enemy is usually going to take a pretty dim view of, of you as a sniper. And you may be in for not pleasant treatment should you get captured. Uh, probably no better example of that than the, the Russians and the Germans during World War II. You were unlikely to make it into a POW camp if you were a German or Russian sniper who got captured by the Germans or Russians on the Eastern Front in World War II. You were probably going to get shot, bayoneted, or hanged right, right wherever you got caught. Gotcha. In fact, actually, if you read some of the, the original, uh, the, the manuscripts from uh, guys who were there and did that, they, they ditched that sniper rifle if, if capture looked uh, imminent. You know, you can get, get rid of that thing. Uh, get it the hell away from you. And uh, don't let anyone know that you're a sniper because people don't like snipers. That is such a long way from Bradley Cooper and the Oscars. Well, but it's, but it's interesting because I think if you look at people's reactions to that film kind of de depending on, in my experience, depending on their, their beliefs about the war, they fall on two different sides of it, right? And it kind of mirrors those, those different views that he was talking about. Yeah, very much so. Uh, if, if you're an, a member of the, the enemy in that, in that situation and you're looking at, at what uh, Chris Kyle was doing, you're probably not going to really be all that happy with him. Uh, not going to be a popular guy. And certainly there are going to be a lot of accusations that this sort of behavior is unfair, uh, to put it one way. So, yeah, it all comes down to your perspective on it. All right. Well, hey, Ian, Ian McCollum, ForgottenWeapons.com. Thank you so much for joining us again. Oh, thank you. It was a pleasure. If you enjoyed this episode of War College, why not let us know? We post every episode to Facebook and... We also tweet everything from at war underscore college. Plus, if you can give us a positive rating on iTunes, that means more people will be able to find us. Next time on War College. His closest aides, his most trusted fellow fighters, and they sort of said, listen, you know, you didn't consult us. You went over our heads. And he decided that this constituted a challenge to his authority. Um, and they've never been seen since.